Mm. Hi, my name is Jess, and you're listening to A Positive Disturbance, a podcast series where we talk to pioneers, mavericks, and creative disruptors who use their power and their influence to make a positive impact and to build a better world. Women challenge the status quo because we are never it. You're a real leader by simply bringing humanity back to business. Do you want to be a leader that you look back in time and say that you were on the wrong side of the argument when the world was crying out for a solution? This is a positive disturbance. Hello there, my name is Jess and I'm the other half of the Humble Brag. And today I'm speaking to someone who I think is a bit of a legend. Um, it's Jason Fulton. He's the founder of Amsterdam's leading consumer insights agency, which is called This Memento. And I think, you know, if you listen onto this podcast, you'll actually hear why we think he's such a legend. Um, so welcome, Jason. Um, it's so good to, uh, good to speak. Uh, we've known each other for quite some years and, you know, I've always really admired your work and your attitude and, you know, what you do. You've um, spent decades um, shining a light on new voices and different perspectives. So today we really want to talk about your own perspectives. But before we do that, I just want to check in with you because, you know, my God, it's been such a mad year. How are you, Jason? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite an overwhelming time, I think, right now for a lot of people. But if we're talking specifically uh, about me, um, and, you know, thanks for having and, and listening to the words that I have to say, if we're talking about me, I feel a bit overwhelmed. There's a lot of things going on, not only from, you know, COVID, Black Lives Matter, work, um, parenting, and I feel disrupted. I feel um, I, I feel as if I can't really produce the way that I'd like to have things done. Um, I'm a I'm a kind of planner at heart. Although I have my creative side, I'm a planner at heart, and I find it very difficult to plan. And also with what's going on with the you know, especially the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, I'm getting a lot of questions. I get a lot of questions from friends, um, well-meaning questions about how I am feeling. Um, and I feel with this situation in particular, I feel numb. Yeah. I feel that, you know, I've been in this, in this kind of situation where, you know, the, the color of my skin and being a person of color um, has meaning, but yet has no meaning. When I was a kid, when I was a teenager growing up in London, I was stopped by the police on numerous occasions. Um, when I was a kid playing out in the, you know, in the pen or the, you know, the green space near my flat where my mum lived, I was, you know, racially abused. When I was in my, in my career, when I was traveling the world or kept traveling the US, I was racially abused. Um, in my career, I've even thought to myself, have I got here on merit or have I got here on color? So what is happening right now is just bringing all of those, those thoughts, those feelings, those experiences back up. Wow. And I think the most, the most um, I don't know, the thing that throws me off more than anything else is that what has changed? 
what really has changed over my decades of work and feeling this from being a teenager and even younger than that, what has really changed? And I think that what, how, what I do believe has changed is generationally, um, you know, we're talking about millennials now being involved in the protest. We're talking about Gen Ys being involved in the protest, more women being involved in this movement and this protest. We are talking about a connected international global communities being involved in this process. And that wasn't the case before. And this is why I think this protest is different from before, from the Brixton riots of the 80s. This is different. Um, and, and so I feel that change can take place, but I also believe that if real change is to take place, we've got to move from just protesting to actually being active at the ballot box. We've got to vote. We've got to be politically active. We have to make a change, not just on the streets, but you know, in the boardrooms uh, and at the ballot box. Otherwise, nothing will really stick. Thank you so much for sharing that. I like that about you, that you can uh, go from the peripheral to the heart of the matter in a, in a, in a skip. Um, but really, we want to talk about you and your journey, um, you know, professionally as well. Um, you started as a kid in southeast London, working on the shop floor of French Connection. Then you made your, yeah, made your journey to Diesel. You worked at Nike, UK, EMEA and Global. And now you own um, founded Amsterdam's leading consumer insights agency. And you work with some of the best brands in the world. You work with Nike, Sonos, and people like Rihanna. So I'm just really interested in what were the kind of triggers and the moments that helped you get on this journey? Like what, what, what did that look like? And what really inspired you to go where you did? I think that the, the thing about the journey that I have is that there are significant touch points throughout that journey, which have contributed to what I do now. So I started out um, doing a design degree in London and that taught me design thinking. It wasn't called design thinking then, it was just called design, but it taught me design thinking, how to put people first, consider what their needs are, and then design something in order to fulfill their needs. Working at French Connection uh, after that, because I was broke, it was a recession then as well. Um, working on the shop floor at, at French Connection taught me how to connect with people directly. In, in a five minute period of time, 10 minute period of time, you needed to convert a conversation into something to do with business. So I took those experiences, understanding design, understanding working with fulfilling a need, understanding sales, retail, customers, product experiences, putting all of those things together into an agency, an agency which provides that experience to a client, a client who is looking to get closer to their customer, get, getting closer to communities, getting closer and improving their retail. And I'm able to sort of dial in those experiences throughout this yeah, 10 years of my company. But yeah, being in within this industry for around 20, nearly 25 years. Wow. But I think the, um, the interesting thing about what you do is it's not just connecting the dots, it's also finding those voices. You know, you are, it's more than dots, it's, it's the voices and, you know, somehow engaging those voices with the brands and the other way around the brands with those voices 
And I find that really, yeah, fascinating. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about those voices. I mean, let's be honest. You know, the 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 experience that, that I that I've had in these twenty plus years has taught me to read brands. It, right. It's taught me to read teams within the brands, and it's taught me to read how to find the right people. Most of the time, when people come to see us, um, they want to engage with us. They want to engage with their target consumer. So already we have an open uh, client who's who kind of knows a little bit about what they want. They know where they are right now, but they are looking to inform their intuition. What we do is we understand absolutely what their needs are. We understand at some points that they need things to be validated, but they also need to be stretched. So what we do by understanding what their needs are understanding what their business and brand needs are, we look for the consumer or we look for the people that will really stretch the brand. Yeah. You know, they, they have so many internal conversations about the brand does, about how they're going to change, how they want to change, but what they're lacking and what they're looking for even more now due to this situation with, with COVID-19 is they are looking to fill the gap of information to fill the gap of what their own intuition is with the changing world. And what we do is we help to find and cast an amazing range of people, whether it be uh, internal influencers, external influencers, customers, existing customers, new customers. And we create this sort of kaleidoscope of people that can really inform their intuition inform the imagination that a brand needs to have to move into this changing world. And I know that maybe one of the questions that we have later, and I don't mean to, you know, fast forward that question, is that we, we I'll go ahead. We are in a, in, a, in a point of change. And what I'm understanding from, from the brands right now is they're scared. There is, there is yeah. fear, yeah. there is uncertainty, there is dread from the brands in terms of, we knew where we were up to about three months ago. Right. We had a, an idea of the, you know, the landscape of what we were gonna unroll or, or, or roll out in the next few months. And then all of a sudden, this change or this, this hard break has caused all of their plans to be disrupted. And now this, this fear of what to do next and making the wrong step is the space that a lot of people that I've been speaking to are in. Yeah. And we don't know what change needs to happen next. What does change look like? And how can this change be sustainable? Yeah. And how does it sound as well? Because I think people are also really looking for the words. I think brands are looking for the right thing to say, but how do you know what the right thing to say is? I think that, you know, that question about what is the right thing to say, um, it, it's about the informing the intuition. I think the brands know their intuition or, you know, um, authentically from their history, from what they want to stand for, 
from their platform, from their values. They know what they want to say. The difference is that we are in a, because we're in a fast changing world and because of what is happening right now that has accelerated that change, the information part, how to be informed, what can the trigger points be, not only for right now, but for the near and distant future, that's where the informed needs to come in. Yeah. Great, that's so interesting. But uh, a bit more about what you do, um, which I also find fascinating is, um, you know, it's also about helping brands find their authentic purpose. And I think the word purpose is, you know, it's so overused uh, <laughs> these last years. But I think in your sense, it's quite interesting because, um, yeah, it means something slightly different to, to you. And I think, um, you know, I'm very curious about how you do that. And for example, through the lens of the work you do with Rihanna's Fenty, um, I'd just love to hear, yeah, what that word means in, in, in relation to her brand. I mean, when it comes to, to, to purpose, um, I mean, the, the word purpose has been overused, is, is now being misused. Uh, and I think that when it comes to the project with, uh, with Rihanna, um, this was an interesting test of what purpose really means and what it could mean in the future. So if I sort of recap a, a little bit of what that project entailed was that um, Rihanna as a global icon to her people and not even people that just buy the brand, but people who buy into her whole persona, it's all been about purpose. She started with um, beauty and with uh, Savage. She changed the industry. That was not to do with purpose. That was to do with looking at the industry, the two industries from beauty and lingerie and saying, this is wrong. Yeah. Things should not be the way that they are. This was not to do with her purpose. This was to just do with her inner belief. And she changed two worlds there. Then what has happened, and which is one of the reasons why Fenty came to us, um, was that being taken over or being, uh, yeah, being, being in partnership with LVMH, the question was then where does that purpose or where does that belief, how does it manifest itself within the luxury industry? And so what we had to do there is that from speaking to customers, existing customers, new customers, speaking to her, speaking to her team, it was about trying to understand what does she bring? What does Rihanna bring to the table of luxury fashion that yeah. no other person and no other brand can do? Which is why then it's not about purpose. It's therefore about your own self-belief, your own self-worth, and how you are looking to bring that change to your customer base and how you are looking to change the industry. This is where, this is what we brought to her. So after interviewing her customer, we brought that presentation to her. Um, we did it first with the LVMH team and the Fenty team in Paris. Then I went to uh, LA to meet her directly and to you know show her the work. And she's tough, man. Wow. I mean, tell me about that day. <laughs> I, that day was crazy. I, I mean, I flew from, I had to go from Rome. I had to fly into uh, to LA. Um, 
you know, I was awake for 24 hours. The meeting was supposed to be at seven o'clock the same day, the same evening. Um, and she arrived at 7 p.m. She arrived at 10.30 p.m. <laughs> and, you know, from that point on, after shaking hands and, and saying how good she looked, it was on. And it was a one and a half hour presentation going on two hours where she was just firing questions. How do you find these people? How do they feel about me? Um, um, how much should I listen to what people are saying about me versus what I should do myself? So again, this is where that balance of discovering what your own intuition is, what your own beliefs are, and then using the information that choosing the information that you that that you've learned to then take it on to the next uh, to the next level. So. After she was taking pictures of the presentation, um, there was some dialogue between her team, uh, me, talking about, you know, what are your beliefs? What, where do you want to go to in, in luxury fashion? Where do you want to take Fenty within this huge LVMH organization? Then the meeting ended with a hug. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, I, I thank you very much, Jason. Uh, excellent work. And I guess in the next few months, we'll see what the new brand can, can look and feel like. But it was an amazing experience. I really felt that uh, I could contribute something to her, her thinking, her team's thinking. And that, that's what we're all about. We're trying to, to bring the consumer's voice, the advocates for the consumer voice, around that decision-making table so that the communities that contribute so much to her brand, to any brand from Nike, Nike SB, uh, Carhartt Working Progress, those communities whose voices are sometimes not heard, we enable those communities' voices to be brought to the table where those decisions are made. I mean, how many people must you have spoken to over the years? It must be... It's about 4,000 people. Wow. And I think, and I think that what's what's really important there as well, Jess, is that you know we are, we're not a quantitative consumer agency. No, exactly. So for people listening to this, they may say, "Well, four thousand people in ten years—that's not a lot of people." We're, we're it's not. Um, <clears throat> it's not if you think quantitatively. Monkey. <laughs> well, exactly. It's not if you think quantitatively. I mean, it's it's um, you know, it's a drop in the ocean. But the thing about what we do is that we are the drop that goes into that ocean. We are about finding the quality um, and the, the insights from the right people that can really contribute to a brand change. So I would say the 4,000 people that we've met, 80%, 85% of those will be either customers or consumers, let's say, whereas the other 20% will be influencers, experts, but also the thing that, that I'd like to, to say um, makes me feel really confident and love what I do is that we bring the clients along for the ride. Yeah. They have to participate, wow. whether, whether that means, you know, skating with somebody for Nike SB or running with somebody for, you know, Nike running, playing football, um, welding with, you know, a couple of, <laughs> a couple of uh, you know, guys who are, are work 
workmen or workwomen, we bring the the client along to yeah. really observe, to really participate in this whole process. And because you do talk about participation a lot, that's something that comes up whenever we have a little catch up. Um, is there anything else you want to say about this idea of participation? Well, I think that, I mean, look at where we are now, yeah. right? If you, if you look at where we are with um, this whole, the protests, everybody in the world is participating on a, on a global scale. If you look at a micro level of what's been happening with uh, COVID-19, everybody has been pulling together for, for their community and doing what they can on a hyper-local scale. Without participation in your community, without feeling as if you're contributing something and that somebody else is contributing something, you have no change, you have no move. The participation that we ask our clients to give us is of their time. They are looking to change an industry, they're looking to change a community through an event or through retail, whatever it may be. The least that they can do is to spend time understanding the people that they want to connect with. So it means that when we design our research, we ask the clients to participate. Yeah. And as we move into a new phase of how we do it, we realize that as we do a lot of ethnographies, meeting people face to face, going to their homes, seeing to their seeing their friends, hanging out with me, clubs and bars, that is just not going to happen in the next few months. Exactly, because proximity is, you know, it's almost a thing of the past. And that intimacy and proximity, um, I think, is really, you know, it's been quite key to the way you've worked. So I'm curious about your your thoughts around adapting to this new world and, and how, you know, how will, how will it look moving forwards for, for the way that you work in such an intimate way? Well, again, this whole situation through me, through us as, as a team, um, because the, the way that we worked and the way that we have loved to work has been meet people as strangers and we leave as friends. This is the way that we that we worked, and the intimacy and the closeness that we bring clients to the consumer houses, us being with the consumers intimately, had to change. And so, what we have had to do is what the brands have to do is to be is to adapt, is to be flexible, is to be nimble, mm. um, and is also not to be frightened or anxious about trying something new yeah and I think for us who have been immersed in the way of ethnographies what we have had to develop which is a great testbed for us going forward is more digital intimacy more ways to understand the ongoing world of a, of a person through digital connection yeah. And, and what we've done recently is that we reached out to some of our, our clients, uh, existing, potential, old, and we asked them, we sent them a survey and said, hey, what do you feel is the future of, of insights? And I would say each one of them have mentioned digital. Right. 
we also created our own online panel of some, you know, 18 influential people from four different countries. And we asked them the same question. How do you see the future of insights and how do you see the future of how we as this memento work? They also came back with digital. So I think from a short and medium term perspective, the digital space will be key. Yeah. The key thing about that is building the, the, the tools for intimacy to still be relevant and to still play a role. Yeah. And some of the things that we've been hearing from our uh, the people on our panel is that just make everything feel like a home. And they're like, okay, what do you mean by that? And they're saying, look, these are the spaces that we we use daily. We're on Instagram. We're not on Facebook. <laughs> we're mm -hmm. on WhatsApp. We're on Snapchat. We're on TikTok. So they're already within this digital realm, and they're choosing each one of these channels to show something slightly different about themselves. Right. This gives a fantastic opportunity to tap into all of these different channels, put them onto one platform and have ongoing dialogue with them. They feel at home in their own space, so they feel safe. Clients who will no longer be able to participate physically will also be able to see and immerse themselves in the digital space of these, of these people, of these, of these customers, and also feel safe. And we are also being able to sort of enable those, those connections and that intimacy to come together. So things need to change for insight gathering in the short term. I think going back to ethnographies for us, that's our expertise, that will come back. But the thing that will probably maintain itself is the digital space added on to ethnographies. Wow, that's great. And is that is that sort of how you see the future? Or is there anything else that you kind of, you know, is there any other hints to this future that you can uh, that you can share with us? Well, again, I think I, I want to allude to the online panel and, and, and the young people that we've been talking to over the last couple of weeks. And what has been really consistent about what they've said is that with them being locked down, restricted, <laughs> you know, keeping themselves to themselves. Yeah. One thing that they have shared with us is that they now have a bigger picture. Right. They have a bigger picture on the world as they would like it to be, how they've been using their time up to lockdown time and how they've been using their time since lockdown. Mm. And there has been, it's, it's like a, a revelation or an enlightenment period where the people that we've been speaking to at least are becoming more mindful about what they do, how they spend their time, who they spend their time with and how they're going to interact with brands. So this mindfulness and this conscientious consumption 
not just of brands, but of, of, of their communities, of their friendships, is something which has really come to the fore. The other thing that we've noticed from the people that we've been speaking to is their reaction to brands. Now, within this space, with these two things which are going on, which is they are very um, critical of brands which could be seen to be leveraging either one of these pandemics Right. Yeah. Because you, you could argue and, and Joshua Anthony did, the boxer did yesterday in, in London or over the weekend, he said racism is a pandemic. Yeah. You could argue that in both of these, these pandemics, brands could be leveraging this to put themselves into a new space to get new brand fans. And this is something that I am very concerned about as a person of color, as a black person. And my panel of people, consumers, who would be right on the edge of um, buying these, these brands are also conscious about these two issues being exploited. And so what we're getting back from our panel is that they want fearsome, or sorry, they want fearless leadership and they want fearless expression. They want brands to not only participate in the narrative, in the, in the issues, they don't just want temporary um, translations in terms of campaign, you know, Nike's campaign um, for both. You know, like Nike's campaign for the race issue and Nike's campaign for the, the staying at home, um, they're, they're wonderful words. But until these words start to translate into something tangible within how the brands are hiring people of color, women, and other people from uh, other places of, of diversity, unless brands start to be more consistent and more open about how they will make this change that they keep talking about, that they are jumping on and saying, hey, we need to be more safe. We need to be more hygienic. We need to think about our health workers. We need to think about our communities. We can't be as selfish as we were before. The world is going to change. Prove it. We can't let racism continue. We need to have more diversity. Um, we, we need to put black people, black communities, people of color on a platform, prove it. And me as a, as a person who is lucky enough to have these conversations with brands, me and the team who are lucky enough to be meeting the, the target consumer of these brands can say, yeah, literally walk the walk, put your money where your mouth is. What are you going to do to make this change sustainable? And the brands that don't, they really risk being cast to the side for a very long time. Because on these two pandemics, we are looking at global change. 
thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm almost silent with awe. <laughs> oh, really? With awe? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to move on to something a little bit more personal just to finish our conversation. Um, I'm just really interested in you as a person and as a father. And I just wanted to, yeah, just quite, yeah, get some thoughts on being a father right now. Um, obviously, with everything that's going on, I'm a mom. Yeah, it's it's very yeah it's very difficult to have these conversations with your kids, but also I'm just curious how being a father affects the way you approach your work as well, and do you see things a little bit differently? Well, yeah, that's a a multifaceted question as well. I, you know, I, I'm a father of of two girls. Um, the eldest one is six, the youngest one four. Um, they are mixed race um, girls. And the levels that I'm talking about here is, you know, Jessica, I, I, I grew up without my father being around. So from a fundamental standpoint, me being available to my daughters whenever is possible is fundament. This is where the whole thing starts. Now, as girls of color, this now as an added dimension, I always knew that if I was lucky enough to have girls and if I have girls of color, which I do, this will be an issue for them throughout their lives. Being a woman and being a woman of color, this will be an issue within their lives. So what I have been trying to do, and maybe they're a little bit too young for, to understand, but throughout their lives up to now, I've been trying to under, explain to them about differences, explain to them that they are from two different cultures, from two different colors, and they need to respect the cultures and colors that they're coming from. This is fundamental. When it comes to the, the lockdown and the restrictions, I mean, this is a different story when it comes to um, running a business and also being the father of two children. It's, it's about um, being fair. It's about being fair to the mother uh, and not putting it all on, you know, the mother's shoulders to say, hey, I've got a business I need to take care of. Yeah. She's got work that she needs to do as well. So it's about, hey, 50-50, we need to do this equally. It's about being available for my children, even at the potential cost of what it's doing to my business. I mean, as you know, with homeschooling and the disruption of not being able to focus so much, not like being able to produce as much as you, you would want to, you start to realize the things which are really important. My business is important. My team is important, but my girls are front and center. And if I know that they are happy, healthy, content, and aware, and that is the foundation that they can grow from, everything else that I will do behind that with my team, with my company, with my clients, with the people that we work with, will just fall into place. The most important thing is the elevation and the responsibility and the fatherhood that I never had is there for my children. 
Oh, thank you, Jason. That's really, really, really special. Thank you, Jess. It's been, uh, yeah, go ahead. It really was so lovely and so deep and really meaningful and really interesting. So I hope the people listening feel the same. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have a really good week. Okay, we see each other soon. Yeah, bye. Thanks, Jess. Bye.